0: We're at the point now where if we continue with the legal system that treats nature as property, my concern is that we might at best kind of slow down the train of um, you know, ecological meltdown, but slowing down and changing direction are two different things. And what we need to do is change direction so we don't go off the cliff as they say.
1: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, the Declaration of Independence famously states that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But do those or similar unalienable rights extend beyond people? According to groups like the Global Alliance for the Rights of Nature, our ecosystem, the trees, oceans, animals, and mountains, are entitled to rights of their own. So was the Declaration of Independence too limited in its language? Does nature have its own self-evident rights? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we'll be discussing law and nature. We'll take a look at what rights we have to access nature, whether there's a requirement that government preserve nature for us, and if we have any legal rights to force the preservation of other species. And to do that, we've got a great show for you today. Our guest is Lindsey Schroman Warren. He's an attorney with Shearwater Law. He's worked for the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund since 2013, where his clients have included the Lake Erie ecosystem, the Little Mahoning Watershed, Crystal Springs ecosystem, and numerous grassroots community groups fighting for local democracy. He's written about the rights of nature in representing ecosystems in court, an introduction for practitioners. He serves as city councilor in Port Angeles, Washington, and is a member of the International Parliamentary Alliance for the Recognition of Ecoside. Welcome to the show, Lindsay.
0: Hey, thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, this is an unusual topic for us to discuss, the rights of nature doctrine.
0: What is that? So in Western law, we treat ecosystems and the earth in general as property. I remember talking to an attorney who who reminded me of that first day of property law class when we go over you know the rights of a property owner. It includes you know the right to exclude others from your property, to use your property, to transfer ownership of your property, and ultimately the right to destroy your property. So we've been treating the earth and its ecosystems as property wherein we ultimately have the right to destroy it. The rights of nature doctrine says, that ecosystems should instead have rights, you know, at the basic level, the right to exist. And within that framework, then, ecosystems are no longer just property, but rights-bearing entities in our legal system.
1: That's a really unusual take from the property law perspective, that old bundle of sticks that uh, my law professor taught me about. But just on a basic level, it's Pretty arrogant, I think, isn't it, for humans to assume that the Earth doesn't have rights? I mean, we're we're pretty late in the game coming into this uh, into nature.
0: Yeah, you know, that's that reminds me of another. You know, or early on in my my encounter with this area of law, I mean, I was a law student working on this at the same time, and and one summer I was collecting signatures on a petition trying to get the Spokane River to have the right to exist, flourish, and naturally evolve. And I'd mostly heard about this idea from non-Native people, from white people. And I'm outside a grocery store collecting signatures, and this woman who appears to be Native walks up. And I say, hey, do you want to sign an initiative to help give the Spokane River the rights? And she looks at me, and I'm, I'm white. And she's like, oh, you're finally figuring that out. And I thought, okay, yeah, this is something different. And, you know, we, we talk about this as rights of nature. So it is part of our Western law system of rights-based laws. But, you know, and, and that doesn't necessarily square exactly with a lot of indigenous ways of thinking about law. There's an excellent book by Robin Wall Kimmer called Braiding Sweetgrass. And in it, she says that in Western law, property ownership is a bundle of rights, whereas in a gift economy, property is a bundle of responsibilities. So she's flipping that from rights to responsibilities. In some way, when we recognize rights for ecosystems, we are recognizing that we have a responsibility for ecosystems. And that actually fits with our rights-based framework, where whenever anyone has a right, somebody else has a responsibility. The government has a responsibility because we have you know, rights to privacy, you know, rights of free speech. Those are rights that limit the behavior of somebody else.
1: It's interesting because in California, we have in the civil code what are known as maxims of law. And one of those maxims is that it, he who receives the right must bear the burden. And is very similar to the concept that uh, you're talking about with indigenous people. Why isn't it that, how did we get switched from responsibilities which I think is more of an indigenous belief. Is that right?
0: I mean, that that's how Kimmer describes it, and that's how a lot of other indigenous legal scholars describe it. I mean, there, there's this question we're wrestling with right now of whether the rights of fr- nature framework, you know, is enough to get us out of our ecological meltdown catastrophe that we're facing, or you know, do we need to do you know, even kind of go beyond the the rights based framework, and, and that's something I'm I'm wrestling with myself. You know, the history of how how we got here, you know, I, I think that goes back centuries, if not millennia. But we've we generally, I mean, maybe a, a non judgmental way of viewing it is is we haven't had to think about rights for ecosystems because we haven't really even had the concept of ecosystems for a little bit more than a hundred years. Let alone understanding that our impact as you know, human societies can alter the Earth's biogeochemical cycles on a global level. You know, if we go back to like, if we were to rewrite the the Bill of Rights, you know, from the U.S. Constitution today, I, I imagine most people would think there'd be something about in, environment, climate, you know, right to a livable climate, as people have been arguing in court, that we'd put in there. I mean, I think. There's certain things like the Third Amendment that we probably would forget about because it just hasn't been relevant for a couple hundred years. But there's other things that are just absent because the framers of the Constitution didn't have to think about those things uh, in their lives at that time.
1: That's because nature was abundant and the earth was nowhere near as populated as it is now, nor did the uh, Industrial Revolution really exist. There's been a lot of change since then.
0: Yeah. And our, I mean, we're at the point now where if we continue with the legal system that treats nature as property, my concern is that we might at best kind of slow down the train of, um, you know, ecological meltdown, but slowing down and changing direction are two different things. Um, And what we need to do is change direction so we don't go off the cliff, as they say.
1: How does the rights with responsibilities argument work with the courts i mean can granted we do have uh, the right to have access to nature so then don't we also have the corollary responsibility to maintain it where does that
0: argument sit yeah so so far courts have not been very receptive to the idea of ecosystems uh, having rights and i'll back up on that idea and kind of go to one of the first legal scholars thinking about this issue, you know, in the in the 20th century in our US legal system and that's Professor Christopher Stone who wrote a pretty famous paper called Should Trees Have Standing. He starts that paper by talking about what he calls the unthinkable, you know, like, you know, how do we think about something having rights when we've never even conceptualized that before? And, you know, he, he goes into that for several pages at the beginning of Should Trees Have Standing and then says, you know, you, you probably figured out why I'm, I'm saying this. I'm, I'm suggesting this, this implausible idea that natural objects, trees, ecosystems should have the ability to come into court and argue for their own rights. Stone wrote that paper about the same time that a case in California was winding its way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And he tells the story in Chatrice Have Standing Revisited about getting um, a copy of his paper to Justice Douglas, who then wrote a dissent in Sierra Club versus Morton, basically arguing Stone's idea that this issue of environmental standing would be a lot easier if nature itself had standing rather than trying to find... A recreationist who spends time in that valley, who who, you know, would be harmed by the dam going in and that sort of thing. That's all predating Justice Scalia's standing jurisprudence that has really shut the courthouse door to a lot of environmental plaintiffs. So, you know, at the same time as as Stone kind of theorizing this idea, which, you know, some people then started adding, you know, ecosystems to their list of plaintiffs, but it never really took off at that point. Similarly, a lot of several states started passing state constitutional amendments. Well, I guess technically the people of the states passed constitutional amendments to recognize a right to clean, to a clean and healthy environment, um, environmental rights, specifically for people, right? So, so there's two levels here. One is saying that we as human beings should have a right to a clean and healthy environment, and that's vital and important. The other is that the ecosystem itself has rights, which is more of the kind of ontological rupture in the law of taking something that is property and turning it into something that is a rights-bearing legal person.
1: Well, let's take a look at it from the way that the professors taught us to in law school, which is, you know, where does it derive from? Where does this right derive from? And I think what, you're, what you've been making is an existence-based argument. In other words, when we declare that we have certain inalienable rights, we derive those rights because we exist. So likewise, doesn't nature have the same right because it existed way before we got here?
0: And what you're getting to right there is is one of the challenges that we're having in just the language we use around this. So we have this concept of legal persons, which is someone who has, you know, legally recognized rights and responsibilities. And we divide legal persons into natural persons, which are human beings, and artificial persons, which are entities, specifically governments and businesses. So where does an ecosystem fit? Because as you just said, ecosystems have been here long before us so they're not artificial persons but also the term natural has already been taken and that means human beings so do we need to invent a new kind of legal person do we fit ecosystems into one or the other you know these are i think the sort of questions that we as a legal community are now in the middle of wrestling with
1: it's an interesting issue if you don't have any basis for it then I mean i'm where do you derive some kind of standing to get into court? Do you just simply create it and argue it and try and extend the law to something that, that the law doesn't really want to exist?
0: So s- some attorneys have tried that, and actually in other countries, that has been successful in the last five years or so. Um, there have been cases in Colombia, India, other other places where judges have effectively sui sponte said, okay, I'm going to recognize rights for that river. It has legal rights. It's a legal person with rights. You know, that has not been the case in the United States. So some of the cases I've worked on in the U.S. have been more about a local government, a city or a county passing a law that recognizes the rights of ecosystems within that jurisdiction. And then the the ecosystem attempting to intervene in court the ecosystems you mentioned that I've represented have been in that place where the ecosystem along with you know with members of the com- human beings who are part of that ecosystem being the speaking parts of the ecosystem attempting to intervene to defend its rights in court so far judges have been like eh, i'm not going to go there but i mean w- we've had judges say you know i think this is an idea that will come and i'm just not ready to do it in this particular case but i encourage you to appeal so, you know, I think it's just a matter of time, in, in other words. How
1: does this play into the, the biblical utterance in, the, in Genesis, where early on it says that God gives man dominion over in the land and the animals and the birds and the things that creep the earth, or however it's phrased? Does, does this uh, biblical concept have any play in the courts? that's
0: an interesting angle that I've never pursued so maybe 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 a theologian would be better able to answer that question I apologize
1: well no I mean and from the stand I understand your reluctance but it, and think about it from the standpoint that this if we're going to approach it from a religious perspective uh, going into court and saying to a judge well the Bible gives us dominion over these things so once there's a, a Dominion established then we have rules that is a far-fetched argument. But perhaps it's a little
0: something we ought to edit out of this conversation later on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a lot of the I mean, there's a there's a robust area of scholarship looking at the intersection of Christian theology, colonialism, white supremacy, property, and kind of how all that mixed together, you know in the creation of our modern legal system. Um, that's not really an area I've dived into, although it would be fascinating to have time to read more of it. But, I, I mean, I think you're on to issues of, you know, where did we get this idea in our Western worldview, which, you know, Christianity dramatically influenced our legal system, that we have dominion over ecosystems and that they are just our property and we can do what we want with them.
1: Right, because the Buddhist view of things is completely the opposite, that all things have rights and that they're to be treated with respect.
0: Yeah, and there, there's some history in... In European law, around like I think it's called deodont law. I, I should probably find the paper. I did not review that ahead of our interview. But you know, animals having standing in court—you know, an animal harms a person, and the animal is actually on trial. I think medieval legal systems in Europe might have had more of a relationship to non-human animals uh, than we do today. We kind of laugh at those ideas now.
1: We do. And, you know, one of the other things that uh, we probably shouldn't be laughing about is the climate change and Mother Nature essentially overruling all of these decisions that uh, say that it has no rights
0: because it's being pretty vociferous right now. Well, nature bats last, as some folks have said. And, you know, this is one of our challenges, I think, in how we think about law or government policy today is that, you know, in, in the law, we can, we can define, you know, A equals B or B equals C or, you know, red is blue or what is chicken? I mean, we can ask all those questions and we can make it say whatever we want. I mean, I've seen, you know, one of the cases I was involved with was, you know, around fracking waste and the agency's like, well, yes, it is toxic, but the law says it's not. So it's not toxic. (laughs) And so we can, we can define reality how we want in the law. But if our definitions and our legal system aren't in line with how the earth works as a a holistic natural system, we're the ones who are ultimately going to suffer. So it's really up to us to figure out how do we align our, our legal system with the laws of natural science, so to speak, so that we're not at such an impasse where what we're doing is so detrimental to the systems that support us and support our society.
1: Is there anything in the existing laws that we have, say, the National Environmental Protection Act or the Endangered Species Act, that give you any solace to this argument? I mean, I know that we've set aside significant areas of land, especially out west, for preservation of ecosystems and species, and we're doing significant harm in other places. I think the Endangered
0: Species Act is potentially the closest of our current environmental law that comes toward recognizing rights for, for ecosystems. And of course, with the Endangered Species Act, it's a specific species, but because we include its habitat, it kind of extends to a larger you know, landscape scale protection. But the, we have to recognize what the limitation is there. It's that species, once it's threatened and endangered, then begins to have protections. I mean, in some way it has rights, although we don't frame it that way. And, you know, so it it fits into the property model too of, you know, you can use your property up to a certain point, right? Government can regulate overuse of property in certain ways. So in that sense, the Endangered Species Act is something that fits into the property framework for environmental regulation while also hinting at what rights of nature could mean if we extend those protections it's it's unfortunate that we're saying okay you have to be you know near death to get to get help right we need to do more because what we're doing overall is is not working
1: well yeah nearly extinct is not the time to start protecting an animal
0: <laughs> unless you just want you know a minimum population yeah and we see as as a society i think you know people are rapidly understanding you know, the benefits of a healthy environment, you know, for us, for our public health, for our ability to sustain ourselves in resilient local economies. And then just, you know, and I think that's where that, that human right, that human benefit is very synergistic with the idea that ecosystems themselves have inherent rights, which is different. You know, that is saying that, you know, we're doing this not because of any benefit to ourselves, but because the, the rest of nature, not just human beings, has value itself. Um, Could that we ever be that altruistic? Is, I mean, e, e, well, boy, I, I don't know. That's, that's getting the philosophy question, right? Right.
1: But that's where the pitch is, that you know, we take care of it for its own existence rather than for our own benefit.
0: Your service to others is the rent we pay for our time here on Earth. You know, I mean, like, there's a lot of things that all of us do that are beneficial for others that we see no individual gain. I mean, I don't want to digress into a question of what is human nature. But, you know, even when we think about evolution, you know, there's, you know, I'm, I'm in the Pacific Northwest, we have a lot of big old trees and an amazing old growth forest. And a lot of it's been harvested at the same time. You know, forest researchers have been studying the way that trees communicate with each other through fungal networks. And, you know, there's this whole debate about, well, that goes against Darwinian understanding of evolution. Well, actually, Darwin said a lot about co- cooperation as well. It's not all competition. It's not all self-interest. So maybe part of this is rethinking our ideas of how biology works, how natural selection works, how competition and, and cooperation work within natural systems, and not assuming that competition is the way that the natural world works.
1: I think there's an entire generation coming that's going to do that.
0: I hope so. It's going to be helpful for all of us who are you know, older, older than that generation or you know, right. part of it or in solidarity with it.
1: And unfortunately, it seems one of the things that we haven't taken care of, I speak as a member of the older generation and having to turn it over to a younger one saying, uh, sorry, we screwed this one up and wow, it's com- coming on us fast.
0: Yeah, we just went through a massive heat wave in the Pacific Northwest with record-setting temperatures, Um, and those sorts of events, while you can't tie them directly into climate change, I think are more frequent because of climate change. That's kind of the way the meteorologists phrase it. And you know, they're reminders to everybody of the importance of figuring out solutions, Um, and not just solutions in the in the you know, let's set a benchmark for greenhouse gas emissions reduction in thirty years. Like that's easy for an elected official to do i mean as a city council member it's easy for me to promise things in the future when i'm not on council anymore right but you know the harder thing is is what do we do in the here and now with you know individual projects uh, individual policy decisions and how are those affected so i hope that the the rights of nature framework can can help with that um yeah, you know, I, I mentioned the case in in where the judge said maybe maybe you know judges should consider letting ecosystems in. I'm not ready for that. That was a case in coastal Oregon where a county had passed a ban on aerial spraying of pesticides. So that's a specific issue where you know the Forest Service federal land in coastal Oregon has not been using aerial spraying of pesticides to manage their forest. The state land and private land continues to do so. Uh, So it's possible without using those chemicals, but this county prohibited it. And that's a specific fight over a specific kind of harm, which, you know, if we stop that harm, nature often bounces back is what we see when we look at ecological restoration. So, you know, in that case, just to finish that story, the state of Oregon has a law from the 1990s that's a Pesticide Preemption Act. It's remarkably similar to an American Legislative Exchange Council model code that is also from the mid-90s. And the appellate court ruled well, following the trial court that the State Pesticide Preemption Act prohibits the county from prohibiting aerial spraying of pesticides. So we have this system right now where states can interfere with local democracy and prevent people at the local level from expanding environmental rights protections which I think is a big problem that goes deeper into our system of government.
1: That seems a little odd. I Maybe not odd, but uh, I thought that the rights that weren't specifically outlined in, in the Constitution or the state Constitution were reserved to the local people.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, the challenge is what it, local governments have, have been a contested space in, in our system of, of law, kind of ever since the 18th century. So the way I explain it, just in brief is that when we had the American Revolution, states became the sovereign powers that had, you know, the power that the king and parliament had. Then through the U.S. Constitution, some of that power, you know, limited power went to the federal government, but those constitutions at the time didn't address local governments. And there's even some academics have written papers on this of like, where's where's the role of local governments in all this? And part of the thinking is that local governments were kind of working fine at the time. So there was no need to, to write about them or change their structure. But in the 19th century, judges argued over, well, was there an a right of local self-government or did all the power that localities, cities, counties, towns, townships, did all that power come from the state? And by the mid 19th century, one of those 19th century jurists. John Forrest Dillon had said that, you know, it's all from the state. That became known as Dillon's rule. And, you know, in the beginning of the 20th century, the US Supreme Court kind of not codified but formalized Dillon's rule, saying, you know, this is this is how it is. Local governments are children of the state. They have no power about what the state gives them. And, you know, the state can even destroy them at will. That then has been how we've approached local governments throughout the 20th century. There was a, a popular backlash against Dillon's rule at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century called the Home Rule Movement. But judges have kind of put Home Rule back in back in the box of Dillon's rule, basically saying, okay, Home Rule expands local governments to be able to do whatever the state doesn't prohibit them from doing, so you don't need express permission. But uh, if the state expressly prohibits it, then the local government can't do it. So it's still state control over local governments. There's been a lot of legal scholarship recently in a fantastic paper by professors working with the National League of Cities called Principles of Home Rule for the 21st Century that uh, says, you know, we need a more robust system for understanding when states can interfere with local democracy. You know, what we learn as preemption as lawyers and arguing that when states are setting ceilings on health, safety, and rights protections, that that should be strictly scrutinized uh, as a barrier to local democracy. But when states are setting the floor for um, you know, minimum standards for health and safety, that's a different story, and that should be more liberally re- reviewed by courts. So let's not just say in preemption analysis, you know, is there a conflict or is there field preemption, and then the state always trumps the local. But let's actually get more into the nuances, because what we've seen in recent decades is corporate special interests using state legislatures to weaponize preemption against local democracy. And I don't think that's what our system of government should be about.
1: No, I would agree with you.
0: I should probably mention the the idea that humans are separate from nature being a a central challenge of this, because um, I think that's where we get a lot of our our estrangement. I mentioned Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, um, Braiding Sweetgrass. In it, she talks about the three sisters garden. You know where people grow corn and squash and beans all together, and the the corn provides the the structure that the beans grow up. And you know she actually then says well, it should be really be called the four sisters garden because the gardener, you know, the the human being who is is helping to create that. That environment for those plants is also you know, working together with those three plant species. So I like how she adds people back into these systems as a necessary part of helping to keep ecosystems healthy.
1: We exist just like nature exists. We have to cooperate. We're running out of chances. Well, Lindsay, it's been a fascinating discussion. The time has just flown by and so we just about reached the end of our program. So I'd like to invite you to share your final thoughts and your contact information if you like.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, this question of rights of nature is at the stage now where we're past Christopher Stone's unthinkable premise of his Should Trees Have Standing article. And we're now at this place where we're trying to figure out what are the legal mechanisms by which this works when an ecosystem has rights. Does that also mean it should have liabilities? I don't think it should. But that is a risk that we might face as this progresses, that you know you can sue the river when it floods your property. You know, how do we make sure that that's not what we end up with? So it's the time, the time is right for attorneys to get involved with this and and to think about, How does this work mechanistically? Who gets to represent ecosystems? How do we ensure that local people's interests are are valued in that process? These are all the fun questions that we as lawyers dig into. So, I mean, I think the time is right to engage. I would say for for starters on kind of where to go on that, um, the Community Environmental Legal Defense Fund, which is one of my clients, uh, is a great resource for getting into this. And their website is CELDF org community and environmental legal defense fund celdf.org and i'm happy to talk with anyone about this stuff as well i can be reached at 360-406-4321 or lindsay at shearwater law which is l-i-n-d-s-e-y at shearwaterlaw.com
1: great well thank you very much lindsay it's been a pleasure having you on the show
0: Thank you so much for this conversation. I I really appreciate it. And it's uh, provided me more questions for thinking about, um, you know, where does this come from and where is this going to go?
1: Good. Well, I'd like to extend our thanks to our guests, Lindsay, Schrom and Warren for being on our show today. Thank you very much. Thank you. And for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on legaltalknetwork.com or in iTunes.